and this year particularly, she's been of some significance because it marks the centennial of her being murdered by right-wing paramilitary uh, militias on the orders of the so-called left-wing government under the um, SPD, the Social Democratic Party of Germany. Um, she, she, like, on every account is, is a hero um, and someone that we should, like, seek to, to get inspiration from. She was murdered for her um, unwavering commitment to revolutionary politics, refusal to submit to the left leadership's attempts to thwart a, a militant uh, workers' revolution. Um, and she said a lifelong career of, in her words, uh, loudly proclaiming what is happening. Um, through... Through the establishment of her group Spartacus League um, and the radical program, uh, Rosa Luxemburg was able to organize a workers' uprising um, for socialist democracy. Um, the Spartacus aims were clear, um, written in their manifesto in 1918. They said, the question today is not democracy or dictatorship. The question that history put on the agenda reads, bourgeois democracy or socialist democracy. The dictatorship of the proletariat does not mean bombs, riots, anar and anarchy as the agents of capitalist prophets uh, deliberate and fal uh, falsely claim. Rather, it means using all instruments of political power to achieve socialism, to expropriate the capitalist class through and in accordance with the will of the revolutionary majority of the proletariat. Um, so at the time of her death, the 1918-19 um, um, German revolution could have become a proletariat revolution um, that could have come, come into socialism. But instead of it um, turning out that way. Um, the SPD leadership used its position to make alliances with the bourgeoisie and the German Imperial Army um, to suppress and kill the working class. Um, and, and during the revolution, it's Rosa Luxemburg writes almost with the benefit of hindsight. Um, she views, she's watching the, like, the crumbling bas bastions of uh, capitalist society and she sees the German revolution as a crosswords roads for Germany, Europe, and the world, um, and, and the crossroads being either socialism or barbarism, and, and what comes after is barbarism. Um, and like this, this part of history I find like really, really inspiring, but also incredibly, incredibly depressing. So fortunately, we're not actually going to talk about the German Revolution, um, but it's important to talk about um, in our own time, and people should go away and learn about it. So they, we have a German Revolution pamphlet of Rosa Luxemburg's writing at the time, um, up until her death. Um, and also, Workers' Liberty is running a uh, week school from the 11th to the 14th of July about the German Revolution. So, so people, people should come to that if they can. Um, so what we're going to be talking about has actually happened 20 years prior to her death. Um, so it's when Rosa Luxemburg writes her pamphlet, Reform and Revolution, uh, which launches her into a claim for the socialist movement um, kind, of, kind of across the world. Um, and we'll discuss why her theory um, that, that a revolution is necessary to overthrow capitalism and usher in socialism is correct and why it's also incredibly important for us today. Um, so before I talk about the pamphlet itself, we have to go back in time to 1878. Um, Otto von Bismarck is the Chancellor of Germany, and he ushers in um, anti-socialist laws, essentially making um, anything other than like running in elections illegal. So that means censorship of left-wing papers, um, um, strikes, all this kind of stuff. So during this period, the Social Democratic Party, the SPD, is formed. Um, this party is almost foreign to what we'll, we'll see in 1919. This SPD, it's, it's illegal at the time it was created, and it's militant, it's um, explicitly revolutionary, um, and, 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 and it grows very, very rapidly. So um, 
1881. Um, in election, they get 300, uh, 312,000 votes. But then by um, 1890, they are receiving more than 1.4 million votes. Um, and Germany's kind of, it, it's quickly um, urbanizing, industrializing, and, and there's, a, there's a large growth of a working class. Um, and um, what happens then in 1890 is basically the anti-social laws are lifted, um, and there's a wave of strikes um, going around Germany. Um, and so the SPD then is kind of like, we need to review our strategy, we're no longer illegal, um, may, we, we can actually make transitional demands now, we can make small reforms, but also with the, the kind of uh, the, the belief that the, the final goal is socialism through revolution. Um, but, be, but basically because things are actually slightly easier for them now, they can make workers' lives better in the short term. Um, so, by 1896, um, Edward Bernstein, who is, um, he's a big guy in the SPD, he was um, a really big guy, actually, to uh, Engels and Marx. They thought that he was, like, the, the kind of continuation of his ideas. They, they, they were, like, he was, like, his right, their right-hand man. Um, so, he started his campaign against, like, the orthodoxy and basically um, advocating for revisionism um, in a series of articles. Um, and it kind of culminates in this book in 1899, uh, The Prerequisite for Socialism and Tasks of Social Democracy. Um, and his ideas basically just causes, like, indignation amongst the parties left. Um, there's not, like, loads of people who respond to it, but people are like, what is this? This is kind of nonsense. So what, what, what did he believe that was nonsense? Um, Basically, Bernstein believed that he could like revise and modernize Marxism. Um, he saw capitalism that had a, um, he believed capitalism had an ability to like adapt. Um, since Marx has written, he believed that there were a number of things that had changed um, in in the like world economy. Um, that means that capitalism is just kind of like a fixed thing. So um, intensification of foreign trade, expansion of banking and fin the financial sector, development of the credit system. Uh, consolidation of the middle class, the rise of property owners, and the emergence of like monopolies. Um, so basically, Bernstein said that these things would not create an economic crisis in the way that Marx theorized. Um, that would basically lead to a revolutionary system and like m m mean that capitalism was not like a feasible thing anymore. What he thought that basically this was this was signs that capitalism was like adapting, and that we no longer have this kind of crisis in the way that like Marx was thinking about. Um, Someone ironically, he's like very, very wrong because these are the exact things that causes economic crisis um, in, in, in the future. Um, so, you know, jokes on him. Um, <laughs> the, so basically, um, he, he basically, there's also like Germany is like booming. There's a rapid economic growth. Um, there's small businesses, entrepreneurs, all these kinds of things growing. And, and he basically believes that like all of these things would grow. Um, with the middle class growing in size and power, um, it, that like basically <coughs> capitalism was successfully like adjust again. Um, and he pointed basically as well to um, previous revolutions um, and basically being like, a oh, revolution is going to mean bloodshed. We can't do this. It it will inevitably mean basically actually more losses for the working class. Um, and he's like just he he's actually quite key, even though he's wrong, because he's, he's re-theorizing everything that people up until that point like believed about 
what a party function is. So instead of there being a democratic, or sorry, instead of there being a party for social revolution, this is a party for like reforms. Um, and, and, and he basically just, he thinks that basically because like capitalism is adapting all the time, that if you have a more representative democracy, then like a class-based society kind of fizzles out. And that if they expand democracy, i.e. like more representation in parliament, um, social reforms, all these kinds of things, that the nature of capitalism means that it's more manageable and you just don't need to, there's no need to overthrow it because it kind of subdues it. And, um, so his ideas are out there um, and there's a kind of right-wing revisionist part of the party that then kind of, um, it, you know, it kind of forms itself around the journal in um, 18... 97, but it is like he, he is widely like just dis disagreed with. But like, despite with him, people thinking he's wrong, um, the SPD leadership mostly thinks he's wrong. The kind of big boys of theory, Kautsky and Babel, uh, again think he's wrong, but they're completely silent on the issue. Um, and I think in part why um, they were silent on the issue is, is um, so. Bernstein's actually doing all of this in exile. He's not. He's not in Germany, um, and he's like kind of in a bad way. He's um, Kautsky's getting letters from Eleanor Marx, being like, "Well, like our friend Bernstein's having a hard time. He he's just gonna like give up politics, whatever." And and so like, this isn't to like excuse them not responding because I I think that's wrong. But it's I think to put into context, it's not it's not that Kautsky's like in. 1898, like, yeah, reformism, this is great. It, you know, that's not what's happening. Um, and, 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 like, people view this as, like, this very, very bizarre thing. How, like, you know, Bernstein is the right-hand man of Ingalls and Marx and all this kind of stuff. Like, what is going on? This is both incredibly bizarre and incredibly concerning. Um, oh, God. Um, I don't know if I have... <laughs> um, so things come to head in the Party Congress in 1898. Um, what happens? Um, so this is a really, really big deal because this is the first Congress where they uh, have, the, have the debate about revisionism. It's, it's, a, it's a very, very big deal. Uh, revisionism and um, reformism. Um, this is pushed on the agenda basically as a result of some of um, people around those, Rosa Luxemburg um, and, and letters by these kinds of, or articles kind of by these people. Um, I think it's fair to say that the SPD leadership were not like super keen for a debate. Um, they wanted to kind of reestablish the orthodoxy, um, but they don't want to like expose these kinds of tensions and, and divisions with the party. Um, and but they didn't stop this through bureaucratic maneuvering, but a bit of kind of like kind of in, indicating how they feel about this. But it's it's not it's important not to overstate this because like they did have the debate, it did happen, and 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 they didn't like stop it from happening. Um, and, and the culture of debate is just so much better at this time. Like we can't, if this is what the Labour Party was, we, we, we'd be very happy. Um, um, so basically, um, you know, Claire Zetkin is attacking Kautsky um, for, not, um, for not, you know, publishing more stuff about how Bernstein's wrong, because there was like some articles that they chose not to publish. You know, um, Bernstein's not there, he's in exile, but he has a statement that's read out where he says his famous thing, um, the final goal is nothing to me, the movement is everything. Um, Babel and Kautsky make their initial critique of Bernstein, but it's, it's basically Rosa Luxemburg and those kinds of people who are for the hard criticisms. Um, and, and basically, as a result, the Congress rejects Bernstein's position. Um, I think the best account of what happens in the Congress is um, 
Rosa Luxemburg's letter to Babel, um, October 31st, 1898. Um, so, all right, she's talking about, okay. Um, however, um, it is also very painful um, that one must entirely give up hope for him. He's talk she's talking about Bernstein. It surprises me, though, that you and Comrade Kowski, since um, you have grasped the state of affairs in precisely this way, did not want to use the favorable mood that was created by the Party Congress for an immediate and energetic debate. But before all else, you made an arrangement with Bernstein that Bernstein would bring out a pamphlet or booklet restating his views, which um, had the effect of delaying the discussion. At any rate, I believe that through all this, I, among others, made use of Plekhanov's letter. Plekhanov wrote just a very good letter, being like Bernstein's wrong. Um, in a manner uh, consistent with the state of affairs that you characterize in your letter. If Bernstein is really lost, the party must get used to it, however painful it is, and must regard him now, um, for hi uh, regard him from now on a social reformer. Um, and uh, she, this is just spot on. Like, you know, like... It's great that you disagree with Bernstein, but why didn't you say it? And like, it's it's very sad that he's going through a bad time. But like, you know, it we in, in the we can't be silent in the face of ideas that are bad for our movement, um, no no matter how painful it is. So um, after Congress, there's basically a gap about with something like properly written out, explain why Bernstein's wrong, um, and 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 this this kind of gap when it's filled is. It's going to be very popular. People are going to like read loads of it, like whatever. Um, and, and Rosa Luxemburg knows this, um, and she wants to make a name of herself. The SPD. She's like, oh, this is my chance. Um, and she writes to her uh, buddy uh, Leo Yogiches, um, basically saying, um, <laughs> "Thank God that Kautsky, um, at, um, as he explained to me categorically, and even showing surprise, has no intention of writing a pamphlet." The only other person who has such an intention is Parvis, but I have no apprehensions about him as a competitor. So she is, yeah, like she is absolutely, first of all, she's like, he's an idiot. And second, and second, like I'm competing for this. Like this is, this is my spot. Um, and um, everything, I mean, it's a funny insight, I think, into like her as a person, but whether or not, you know, her, her character is actually particularly useful to know. Um, so, yeah, she's carefully, she's like, this is a precise intervention when she's writing this. Um, and so she writes it, and it's just met with acclaim. Um, and and it's, it's not just within Germany, it's the rest of kind of like the socialist movement around the world, Europe really. Because basically, like, all eyes are, are on the SPD, like this, this, you know, this was a huge deal. Um, and Rosa Luxemburg isn't just writing it to be like, this is why you individually are wrong, Bernstein. She, she's doing it to educate the rank and file of the party. I mean, she's also doing it because, you know, fame. But, like, it, it is... So, basically, she writes, um, um, it is therefore in the interest of the proletarian masses of the party to become acquainted actively and in detail with the present theoretic knowledge remains of the privilege of a handful um, academians in the party. The latter will face the danger of going astray only when the great mass of workers take the keen and dependable weapon of scientific socialism in their own hands. All the petty bourgeois inclinations, all the opportunistic currents come to an end. Um, you know, ev everyone should learn about theory that's she's she's right um um so 
Basically, the, the, I think you can kind of put the debate between Luxembourg and Bernstein into a simple question, are democracy and capitalism compatible? Bernstein says yes, Russell, Rosa Luxemburg says no. So what does she say in her thing? Um, so Bernstein's basically trying to like revise um, Marxism, and she basically is just like, no, like the pillars of Marxism, like, they're great. Um, and these, this is basically like a useful way for us to view the world. Um, and she uses actually like all of his points, everything he says, she responds with Marxism showing where they're wrong, and, and she's right. Um, so she delves into the economic things about that Bernstein says, so the things about monopolies, things about credit, all that kind of stuff. She's, she's like, this isn't actually making capitalism um, uh, more stable. It's, 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 um, it, it's deepening these kinds of things, like the, these kinds of issues between um, crisis and, and capitalism. And she's proven right. Like, history just shows that that's right. And, and like, Bernstein's most compelling thing is like, well, I haven't seen an economic crisis in, in, in years, like in 20 years or something. And she's like, well, you know, like, there's not gonna, there's not a crisis right now, but like, that doesn't mean that there's not going to be. Like, it, it, this isn't like every three years there's gonna be a crisis, if not, like, you know, capitalism's fixed. Like, and she, and she then basically is like, look, Bernstein, right after you said this, there was a crisis in America and the world market was hit. Um, in like, in like, I think 1900 or something. So it, it, he's just like wrong like the facts are just not like backing him and and it's like capitalism just doesn't exist or not exist <laughs> 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 adapt, adapt. <laughs> um so she um she also offers useful analysis about um trade unions basically their function under capitalism to ameliorate the kind of like um stress of workers um and they do that by like passing reforms so better conditions better pay all that kind of stuff and that basically she calls the objective of trade unions under capital the labor of sisyphus which is like cutting but also very true um and that like she's she doesn't reject unions but she's she's correctly viewing what they are under capitalism um she you know and and nor does she reject like representation in parliament like her entire life shows that she doesn't suffrage movement, all this kind of stuff. But but she's but she's clear, like she warns against Bernstein's belief that simply getting into government is is enough. She also warns against um, compromising political values to get into coalition um, with liberal parties. Um, and she says, in the bourgeois society, the role of social democracy is that of opposition party. As a ruling party is allowed to rise only in the ruins of bourgeois state. And her comments on this front again ring just true because the way the SPD ends up acting in 1919. Um, and how they respond to a workers' revolution. Um, so, and I think I think this is like kind of where we get to the most, you know, the key bit of the book um, or pamphlet. Um, it's distinguishing between reforms and revolution. Um, while she's still supporting reforms as a transitional demand in the short term, she says the uh, work for reform should not be understood as drawn out revolution. Um, and, and, and neither should revolution be understood as a condensed series of reforms. Um, legal reforms and revolution are, are not different methods of historical process, and she says <coughs> that can be picked out from the counter of history as one picks out hard and sausages. Um, they're in Germany, so. Um, <laughs> um, but, but, and she also makes the point, like, like you know, Bernstein's like, well, I, I don't want the working class to die in a revolution, it would be horrible. And, and she says, the road, um, it's not that the road is more tranquil, calmer, and slower method to the same goal. Um, and 
and she basically says this this is just a different goal we're we're on different roads there's we're going in different directions um and and you're it, when you're choosing reform over revolution, you divorce democracy from socialism, and, and in this process, you just lose both. Um, and just as all roads lead to Rome, so too do we logically arrive at the conclusion that revisionist proposal to slight the final aim of socialist movement is really a recommendation to renounce the socialist movement itself. So indeed, revolution and socialism are the same. Um, this is my last bit. Um, why is this important today? Well, she's right, so, you know. Um, capitalism hasn't adapted to, like, look at 2008. That was kind of crap. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, but all, like, you know, like, climate change, like, all these, like, awful things are happening, like, th things aren't adapting. Um, the problems with capitalism are structural, and we just can't put band-aids over what is just a gaping wound. Um, and... You know, like what? You know, why are we revolutionaries? Why, if you're not a revolutionary, should you be revolutionaries? It's not that having more working class people in parliament or higher wages or all this stuff is enough. It's that we want like to own the world and we want to run it for, for the benefit of everyone. And the ruling class are simply not going to let us just like vote away their wealth. Um, and but despite us knowing that, um, like I, you know, our trade unions and like, I guess our party, I guess technically the Labour Party's ours, um, is just like, they just don't, they, no one sees this, and, and socialism ends with Corbyn getting into government, and if that was socialism, I would not be a socialist. Um, and, and I think it's just like, just so uninspiring, and just like, boring, but also just doomed. Um, and the other, I mean, the other thing is, is revisionism, like, Marx, Marxism's a good thing, and like these like like little twatty boys who think that they're like smart and can basically revise Marx and be like, oh well, I, I have a new idea. You don't have a new idea, and it's probably wrong. And it's not it's not that we're like building on Marxism. They're just like shitting on it. Um, you know, think it. Think of Aaron Bastani, like you know. <laughs> um, but okay, yeah. Um, and so, so the last, basically the last two things, um, having, they had the debate in Congress, and that, that's actually the main thing about how, how, what we learn about, like, how they came to this conclusion. Like, that, that culture of debate is, like, so important, um, uh, hashing out your ideas, all this kind of stuff. And, and they had the debate because there were people like Rosa Luxemburg being like, we, we are having this debate, like, this is something we're going to decide. And I mean, even, even amongst the, like, the Labour Party now in anything on Brexit is is just like completely. We, we don't have a conference debate on it. It's nonsense. Like e even like momentum is just like nonsense about how they decide what they think about things. There's, it, there's there's no debate. There's no democracy. And and it's the people who pushed for this agenda. It's like it's it's this kind of like political tenacity is what makes like Rosa Luxemburg who she is. And she's you know she she's beyond kind of a martyr. She's she's like. You know, she she encompasses like all these ideas that are, are like going to change the world, kind of thing. Um, and that's what makes her so relevant today. And um, this is my last thing. So, Trotsky wrote a eulogy of Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht, um, who was killed with her. 
Um, and he says, Carl, not Carl, Rosa Luxemburg and Carl Liebknecht, you are no longer in the circle of living, but you are present among us. We sense your mighty spirit. We will fight under your banner. Our fighting ranks shall be covered by your moral grandeur. And each of us swears if the hour comes and if the revolution demands to perish without trembling under the same banner as under which you perished. Friends and comrades in arms, Rosa Luxemburg and Carl Liebknecht. So, Okay, now I'm going to introduce Martin. Um, 20 minutes? Yeah, sure, well, um, it's 18 when I timed it last. Wow. Um, I'm sorry about the. Um, I had a PowerPoint presentation to go with this, but we can neither get onto the system with the YouTube, nor can I get onto my laptop. So, what I'm going to talk about is Luxembourg and Luxembourgism. And my uh, argument is that we should be followers, people who learn from Luxembourg, but that Luxembourgism, as an ism, is a nonsense. So firstly I want to talk about isms. Right, biologists are generally Darwinists. In most other fields of thought we don't go for isms. You know, mathematicians aren't Gaussists. Um, and why? Because we consider these ideas, even if individuals play a big role, are collective developments. And that is, uh, that's uh, also the case for the socialist movement. And generally, isms in the socialist movement start off as insults, which those insulted eventually have to shrug and say, OK, we just have to go with this term. So, for example, the term Marxist is invented by a guy called Paul Bruce. He's an anarchist who become a reformist for his factional battles in the French Socialist Movement in the uh, 1880s, which were actually between right and left, but his label for the left is, these are Marxists, these are people who just do what Marx and Engels said, and this is given colour by the fact that one of the leaders is Laura Marx, Marx's daughter, and another is her husband, Paul Lafargue. You know, these guys are just doing what Daddy says. Okay, and uh, there's this famous uh, statement by Marx, well, I'm not a Marxist. Um, and this is not, there is this body of doctrine which everybody else calls Marxism, which I don't agree with. It's, you know, where does Paul Bruce get off with this sort of stuff? After a while, you know, the Marxists consider, right, okay, look, we just have to put up with this word. Okay, we're Marxists, let's argue about the substance. Same happens with Trotskyism. Luxembourgism is different because the term Luxembourgism is developed some years after Luxembourg dies, when she can no longer say what she thinks of it. So I want to talk about Luxembourg's political trajectory and then about the political trajectory of Luxembourgism. As Justine's told us, Rosa Luxembourg becomes a figure in the socialist movement of her time with her pamphlet Social Reform and Revolution, in 1899, which has a huge impact outside Germany. And, which, and so she becomes part of a political current in the Socialist International, uh, which is not called Luxembourgist or Leninism, it's called the Radical Left. And Luxembourg is one of the leading figures of this alongside Lenin. So, for example, in the 1907 International Congress, they 
they together propose the decisive amendment which says in the event of a world war, the socialist movement should conduct an internationalist policy striving to overthrow its government. Uh, the, the amendment which becomes the centre of the debate in the First World War. Um, she is known within that current for certain writings. She's known for her writings on the mass strike. Um, in her analysis of the mass strike, which means uh, a wave of strikes across a lot of industries um, and taking up political objectives rather than a, just a strike in you know, Lambeth Council about the wages in Lambeth Council. Yeah? Uh, that's what they mean by a mass strike. Uh, uh, she's known for her writings against um, imperialism, her strong stand against imperialism. She's also a bit known for the particular theories which she develops about the economic mechanisms of imperialism. And she's known for having uh, minority views in the radical left and in the movement on the national question. Um, I'm not going to talk about those, but you can discuss them later. The one thing I would say is more or less every account you've read of Luxembourg on the national question, unless you've actually read Luxembourg, is wrong. There's one exception, there's a recent article by Eric Blank, all the other accounts are wrong. Okay, the second-hand ones. Okay, now, um, that, so, you have, that's... Rosa Luxemburg's political trajectory, really, from 1899 to 1919, when she dies trying to lead a revolution like the one that Lenin and Trotsky and others have led in Russia. That's a, she is a leading figure of the radical left internationally. What is said to have been the case is there was a particular... She had a particular views on the question of party organisation. I would argue this is largely myth. It is based mostly on an article which Rosa Luxemburg wrote in 1904. <coughs> uh, in 1903, uh, the Russian socialists have finally got themselves together in a party. After that, there was a very ragged falling out, which was actually over the question of the membership of an editorial board. Political lines weren't marked clearly. In that period, um, Rosa Luxemburg... I think influenced by some of the Mensheviks and by Trotsky, wrote uh, a polemic on the Menshevik side. Um, Lenin wrote a reply which didn't get published, which says, look, basically all the generalities that Comrade Luxembourg gives are completely accurate. She just isn't uh, taking account of our particular situation with the Russian socialist movement now. In 1905, with the revolution, the political differences between Bolsheviks and Mensheviks, come into actual politics. In 1906, Rosa Luxemburg writes an article which aligns itself very clearly with the Bolsheviks. And one of the things she says in this is, look, the Mensheviks make a great deal about the autonomy of the masses, the autonomy of the mass movement. Comrades, this is all bullshit. The mass movement will have its autonomy whether you like it or not. What is the question is, are the socialists going to fulfill their particular task, are they going to rise to the level demanded by the mass movement or are they just going to stand back and say, Woo, what a great mass movement. Yeah? Um, so she polemicises against what has been known, comes to be known as Luxembourgism. Um, 
It's certainly not the case that she considers a political party unimportant. Her entire life, after she finishes as a student, is as a full-time political party activist. She doesn't do a lot of arguing about why a party is necessary, because then, unlike now, the idea that you could be a socialist without being a member of a socialist party was like the idea you could have a trade union organisation in the workplace with every person being individually a trade unionist, but they don't join the trade union. If you're a socialist as a collective, why don't you join the socialist party? You know, socialists outside the socialist party... Did I hear you right? Okay. Um, it's further based on unpublished uh, text she wrote in prison in 1918, which criticises some of the Bolsheviks' policies, uh, mostly wrongly, I think, which she chose neither to publish nor to reflect in her writings after she got out of jail. Uh, some of her writings, when she got okay, specifically contradict what she argued there. Um, her writings about the National Assembly in Germany are completely at odds with what she wrote those texts about the Constituent Assembly in Russia. No, she doesn't write a criticism, she hasn't published. This is her unfinished, unpublished notes. So, where does Luxembourgism come from? Luxembourgism originates much later. Um, and it takes a while. You can read the, uh, the minutes of the 4th Congress of the Communist International in 1922, and there's a debate on what the, they call the Eastern Question. And it starts off with a Dutch delegate, in fact, giving a short summary of Rosa Luxemburg's economic theory of imperialism. And there's no... Comrade Chair, what's, what, what's this crap we're getting in the minutes? Everything's, that's fine, you know, they some of them agree, some of them don't agree, that's fine, it's part of the theoretical debate. Um, Luxembourgism as a theory, as, a, as a, an idea, first emerges in 1925, really. And it's the creation of a woman called Ruth Fischer, who was then the leader of a German communist party. Quite a remarkable woman in some ways, um, she becomes the leader of the German Communist Party, which is probably the biggest communist party to exist ever in an advanced capitalist country, at the age of 25, I think, as a young woman. Uh, she, will later, she later became a Trotskyist for a while. Um, but at that point, what she is acting as is the ally of the, the Troika, the people who have taken over power in Russia after the death of Lenin, Zinoviev, Kamenev and Stalin, and particularly Zinoviev, in their effort to crack, to whip the communist parties across the world into line. The communist parties, up to their, their, some of them are extremely ramshackle. There's arguments about everything. It, it's very lively. And, no, and so they undertake a process which is called Bolshevization. Part of it... Uh, this is why it got through quite easily, it's just getting them in shape to do something properly and work together rather than just having arguments among themselves, but which couples that with imposing what they themselves called a monolithic regime. There are no factions, well, there are meant to be no factions, in fact there were. Um, any sort of divergence was likely to be attacked as a deviation, this is where the term deviation comes from. Rosa Luxemburg invents, no, Rosa, Rosa, Ruth Fischer invents Luxemburg's invention as a stick to beat 
uh, her opponents in the leadership, some of whom, of course, will be close comrades of Luxembourg, over the head with. And what she says is the essence of Luxembourgism is underestimating the party, too easy going about the party, and so on. Now, in fact, there is no... Um, I think there is no truth to this, basically. Um, Rosa Luxemburg's argument in the mass strike is not that the mass strike is a substitute for the party, but this shows how the party, the heights that it has to rise to. In fact, in a lot of ways, it's exactly the same argument as Lenin's in What Is To Be Done, which, contrary to myth, is against economists. Look, the working class is right. The working class is demanding clear socialist ideas. You know what Oh, you know, we should just give them a bit of economic stuff. You know, they're not really up to anything more. And um, uh, it's not the case that she says, wait for the mass strike. Where she divides with Kautsky in the German movement is in 1911, which is an argument about whether mass strikes are desirable, but not now, let's wait for them, or whether the party should start deliberately voluntarily, in advance, agitating for mass strikes in the campaign that they were running at that time. It was about party initiative. She was also a leader of, as well as active in Germany, she was a leader of, the socialist, of a socialist organisation in Poland, which was far more centralised than the Bolsheviks ever were before 1917. Far more centralised. So it, it's, it's, it's a myth. Uh, but Ruth Fisher <coughs> develops this... <coughs> And um, basically, she uses it um, to establish the hegemony of the group around her in the German Communist Party. Only for a short time, because then she would be pushed out by the, the full-out Stalinists. Yeah. Right. Um, so that's come and gone. There's a second invention of Luxembourgism in the 1930s. And this is basically people who take the Luxembourgism that Ruth Fisher has invented and give a positive sign to it. So, so Ruth Fisher denounced Luxembourgism as meaning, well, you might have a party, but, you know, it shouldn't do so, too much. It should be really easygoing. Uh, you know, really the big thing is to wait for spontaneous struggles, <coughs> autonomy, the mass movement, and so on. And that is... And they took this in a positive... This is what we should do. This is a model. So this is groups like the ILP in Britain. The ILP was a Luxembourgist party in Britain for decades. And, you know, it was... While it was, it was still basically a parliamentary... It had MPs, it was still basically a parliamentary party. After that, it was a party that published the paper and didn't do a lot apart from that. Um, and... Uh, so they take this as... Luxembourg is, is a positive model. Why they do it, of course, is that... Uh, it's meant to be an alternative to social democracy on the one hand and Stalinism on the other. And it isn't as scary as Trotskyism. Um, uh, so that's, that's the second variant. One thing needs to be said about how this comes about, which is the fate of Luxembourg's writings. Um, so, you know, well, in the... By the bookstall, we have... Volumes 1 to 25 of Lenin's collected works. You know, and if, you, if any of you want to buy them, please go, do. But if not, you can get them second-hand. It's, you can get Marx and Engels' collected works. Um, but Luxembourg's collected works 
um, are just in the process of being put together now. It's three volumes have been published so far, they think it'd be 25. There was a collected works published in East Germany a while back, but it contains a tiny fraction of her writings. For example, this, this article of 1906, where she aligns firmly with the Bolsheviks, is not in there. Why isn't it in there? Because it was written in Polish, and what that collected works contains is only articles written in German, and not all of those. In particular, um, even what was available wasn't very widely available. So, for example, when I first came into political activity, which is um, in the 60s, which is when what is now the SWP was calling itself Luxembourgism, Luxembourgism. what you got, if you wanted to find out what Luxembourg said, this article from 1904 had been republished under a different title, which Luxembourg never gave to it, Leninism or Marxism, and that was in circulation you know, for a long time. Her unpublished text on the uh, Russian Revolution from prison, that was in circulation. You could get a hold of those easily. For almost anything else, the only way you could get them, they were in little pamphlets printed in Sri Lanka. Printed in Sri Lanka because there was a relatively strong Trotskyist movement. So Trot groups in Britain would have a few copies of these. But you couldn't go into a bookshop and buy them. You had to find a lefty bookstore which had these little pamphlets printed on really cheap paper and so on. Well, they found, well, yeah, but so Luxembourgism was based, this Luxembourgism was based basically on taking one unpublished work of uh, Luxembourg's, uh, one article later contradicted, and that shows that, I mean, just think of, you know, 40 years after your death, somebody is constructing a, you know, a theory of milesism. <laughs> and they go through Kieran's writings, they find something he's written and decided not to publish, and another article he's written, and then later on he says, well, actually, this is wrong. And they say, this is milesism, yeah? <laughs> it's rather like that, yeah? Um, <laughs> so, um, uh, Michael, we have a tremendous amount to learn from Rosa Luxemburg, as we have a tremendous amount to learn from the radical left in the, um, in the Second International. Uh, again, there's, there's, there's been quite a culture on the left, um, stating from Stalin, say, the Second International is all crap, you know, they're all crap, and then, you know, just nice things started after 1970. It's, it's completely untrue. You know, Lenin, Trotsky, Luxembourg, they learnt their politics in the Second International. There was a, an extremely rich debate there. The Second International created the Bolsheviks. It created the Spartacus Bund and the, uh, the German Communist Party. It also, you know, it also gave rise to right-wing trends. But that, that, those debates, that experience, those struggles, was where they, those came from. We have a lot to learn from Luxembourg, but from the whole of Luxembourg, we have nothing to learn from Luxembourgism as an ism. <laughs>